Let's pray. We'll ask God for his help. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for this, your word about our risen Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as we hear of his rising, that we might understand better what it means, that we might be filled with hope and peace and joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. David MacDonald is a minister. Uh, Dave uh, served at Crossroads Christian Church in Canberra. A number of people who uh, have come to our own church from Canberra know him very well. Uh, In the year 2011, after nearly two decades of ministry in Canberra, uh, Dave decided to uh, pull up stumps with his family and move to Darwin. Uh, They were going to plant a church in Darwin, a very needy city. Uh, But just before they were about to leave, David heard some terrible news. Thanks, Luke. Let me quote from his book. It's a book called uh, Hope Beyond Cure. Excellent uh, little book. I'll have some copies of it uh, at uh, the the bookstall at church camp. Let me quote from David. Two devastating words spoken to me by different people in the same week of December 2011 left me feeling hopeless and lost. Tumour and incurable. These cruel words took my breath away and ushered in the darkest period of my life. They introduced me to all manner of fears and doubts, shattered my plans and dreams, devastated my family and challenged my faith in God. These two words changed everything. Uh, David was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. He was given between 10 and 13 months to live. He was 50 years old. To me that seems very young. It may not seem young to you. Uh, David writes, My dreams were replaced by despair. I ached inside, and I wept often, deeply, uncontrollably. David says that he not only felt sad for himself and for all the the hopes and dreams that he had of of heading off to Darwin, but he felt sorry for his four kids as well, the idea that they would be without their dad. And it made David ask the question, what hope is there? Is there any hope? Let, let, Let me quote again. When the prognosis is bad... When all attempts at medical intervention have been exhausted, when prayers have not been answered as as we might wish, what then? Is there still hope? What do you think? What do you think? How how, how are you going to cope when it's your turn? Uh, Because your turn will come. How are you going to cope when it's you that get sick, when it's you that hear those words incurable? That word incurable. How are you going to cope when it's your turn to face death? Will, will you have any hope? Will, will you have any reason to look forward to a more positive future in the face of your own death? As we pick up the story in John's Gospel, Jesus is dead. He's nailed to a cross, beaten, tortured, killed. His side pierced. John has given us his eyewitness testimony about it. He saw it for himself. Jesus is dead. At this point, we meet a man. His name is Joseph. Uh, Joseph, as it turns out, is a kind of a closet disciple of Jesus. Uh, Up until then, he hasn't been very brave about his discipleship. But now, uh, Joseph kind of screws up his courage and he asks Pontius Pilate for Jesus' body so that he can give Jesus a decent burial. Back in those days, generally speaking, what would happen to crucified criminals is they would be thrown into a mass grave. But Joseph, it seems, is quite wealthy, quite influential, and Pilate grants his request. John chapter 19 and verse 38. Have a look with me. John chapter 19 and verse 38. 
Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Now we met another man, although this man we've met before. Uh, do you remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3? Remember he came to Jesus in the dead of night for fear of uh, uh, being exposed, but he's, he's a religious leader from part of the Sanhedrin. He asked Jesus about, it, about himself and his teaching. And you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, you must be born again. Uh, you may remember also we saw Nicodemus another time. It was in John chapter 7. The, uh, the Jewish leaders were speaking out against Jesus. Nicodemus tried to speak up for Jesus, but he was very quickly shouted down. Well, Nicodemus now joins with Joseph. Uh, together they put Jesus in a new garden tomb. Uh, we know from the other Gospels that Joseph owned this tomb. Uh, they wrap his body up with linen and with spices. They put 30 kilograms worth of spices in with Jesus. That's a lot of spices. 30 kilograms. These blokes must have been extremely wealthy. Verse 39. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, by the way, there's another allusion to the Old Testament here. Do you remember last week... As we looked at the crucifixion narrative, uh, John kept on uh, making allusions or references to the Old Testament, kind of taking us below the surface to understand really what was going on. Well, he's actually done it again here. Uh, and again here, it's an allusion to Isaiah chapter 53. He did the same last week. Do you remember how Jesus was numbered with the transgressors? It was an allusion to Isaiah 53. Well, here's another one. Uh, so 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, predicted that a man he called the servant... Uh, would, would die for the sins of God's people. God would lay on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah says this, i put this on your outlines, left-hand side, about halfway down. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, talking about the servant of the Lord, he says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Here is Jesus, with the rich in his death. Again, there's more here than meets the eye. This is no ordinary criminal being buried. This is the fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy about the servant of the Lord. Jesus has died in our place for our sins, bearing our iniquity. Right, there's another important thing to notice. Notice here what's happened. Jesus' physical body has been physically wrapped up in linen and spices and physically placed in a physical tomb. In, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul talks about the original Christian message, the message that he received, the message that he passed on. And he says there are four very important features, four historical facts on which, which really form the Christian message, the basics of the Christian message, each of which in the light of the Old Testament are very significant for us. And one of those four historical facts is that Jesus was buried. Have, have a look at this part of the Bible. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul writes... For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to various people. Very important, it seems, that Jesus was buried. Why is it so important? 
the Old Testament talks about it, talks about three days, talks about his body not seeing decay. But it's more than that. Why is it so important that Jesus was buried? It means he is genuinely dead. He's genuinely, this is not a near-death experience, no, no, no. He is dead and buried. His physical body has no life left in it. His body is a corpse, a cadaver. Jesus is, is dead and buried. That's going to be important as we consider the nature of the resurrection. So, you'd expect that that's the end of the story. And that's exactly what the disciples expected. It's all over. It's all over. All their hopes, all their dreams are dashed. And so, they gather together for the Sabbath and they hide out in a room. They are shocked, they are grieving, they are scared. Scared that they themselves might be rounded up and arrested. They don't know what to do. Unsure what to do next. Sabbath passes, Sunday morning comes... Very early, Mary Magdalene gets up. She decides she's going to go to Jesus' tomb and just check out what's happening there, make sure the body's been properly looked after. But when she gets there, she's in for another shock because the stone that had been blocking the entrance to the tomb is gone. Look with me, John chapter 20 and verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And Mary jumps to the obvious conclusion. Someone's taken the body away. Maybe it was a grave robber. Remember, there are 30 kilograms worth of spices in that tomb with Jesus. That's an enormous amount worth of fortune. That is a grave robber's dream come true. Uh, maybe it was a robber. Or I guess maybe it could have been the, the Jewish authorities or, or the Roman authorities. Maybe they were securing the body for some reason. Something like, well, someone must have taken the body, according to Mary. And so she races off and she tells Peter... And John, verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John. And she said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and John race off to investigate. When they get there, they see the tomb is empty. There's no body there anymore. But straight away they see that this, this can't have been a grave robbery. Because the linen strips with all the spices on them are still in place, neatly folded. They're still there. No grave robber is going to take the body and not the valuable stuff. In fact, neither would the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities for that. They're not going to leave the, the linen in a nice spot. They're just going to take everything, holus bowls. No, no, it's something, something very strange has happened here. Verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived, went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. It can't have been a grave robber. That There's some other reason why the body is gone. John doesn't really understand what's going on yet. But things are starting to click. He's starting to get it. This is what Jesus has been talking about all along. This is what the Old Testament has been pointing to all along. Jesus has risen again. And so for John, the process begins. Even though he doesn't understand everything yet, John begins to believe. Verse 8. <coughs> Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw... And believed. Are 
they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Well, the disciples go back, but Jesus stay, uh, but uh, Mary stays there at the tomb, and, she, and there she sees two angels. She doesn't know that they're angels, and, and they talk to her. They ask her why she's crying, and she tells them someone's taken Jesus' body. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. But before they can answer, Mary realises there's someone behind her. In fact, it's Jesus raised from the dead. Uh, Mary turns and she asks him what's going on. She doesn't recognise him, maybe through the tears, maybe because it's dark, uh, certainly because she's not expecting Jesus, who is dead, is going to be the man standing there talking to her. Uh, she thinks it might be the gardener. And she, so she asks if he knows where the body of Jesus might be. Verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and and I will get him. But then in just this extraordinary, wonderful, magical, stunning moment, Jesus speaks Mary's name. And suddenly she realises, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned towards him, and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Wow. Can you imagine how Mary felt right then? The very first witness of the resurrected Jesus. How much she felt like completely unexpected and utterly brilliant. Jesus, the amazing, wise, loving teacher, the the miracle worker, the leader that she has followed, that she's staked her life on. Here he is, alive again. His body is out of the grave and he is standing there talking to her. Extraordinary. And so what does Mary do? Of course, she gives him the biggest hug. She, she, She grabs hold of Jesus. Reminds me a little bit of a scene from the movie Finding Nemo. In the, the movie, Nemo gets taken away from his dad, and the whole movie is about his dad finding him, hence the title Finding Nemo. Well, near the end of the movie, don't want to spoil it for you, but Nemo's dad does find him. And he, he, he grabs hold of him like he's never, ever going to let him go. Mary has Jesus back. She grabs hold. She doesn't ever want to let go. But Mary can't hold on to Jesus for long. Jesus has a job for her. He says, I can't stay right now. She'll see him again. But he says, I can't stay right now. I haven't gone up to heaven yet. He says, deliver the message to the other disciples. I'm alive and I'm returning to heaven in glory. Verse 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, or literally stop holding on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. 
Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Okay, well, can you see what's here in this passage? Uh, Jesus is dead, buried on Friday afternoon. Joseph and Nicodemus see to that. But then Sunday morning, the tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away. Uh, Mary, Peter, John, they all see it for themselves. The tomb is empty. The body is gone, although not the linen strips and the spices. (coughs) And then we find out Jesus is alive. Mary sees him, she, she, she talks to him, she, she touches him and she tells the message to the other disciples. All right. Now, I know this is old news for most of us. Uh, I know that many of you have always believed that Jesus rose from the dead. But friends, just stop and think for a second. Because if this is true, it's extraordinary you don't know anyone who has been dead and then alive again it doesn't happen if this is true it's world shattering here is a man for whom death is not the end here is a man who was dead and then came alive again That changes everything, doesn't it? That changes everything about the whole meaning of life. It changes everything about the whole meaning of death. It changes everything about the whole... Everything about everything, about our hope, about eternity. If this man is genuinely alive again after he died. So let's think for a while then about applying this passage to ourselves. Three things to say. First, the resurrection happened. It's true. Second, the resurrection is physical. It involved Jesus' physical body. And third, the resurrection is the foundation, the substance, the the basis of our hope, our hope beyond death. The resurrection happened, it's physical, and it's our hope. Okay, first point, the resurrection happened. Important that we're clear on this, because not everyone believes it, do they? In fact, If you believe it, many people will tell you that you're foolish, that you've made a a leap of faith, that you're believing something that is not true, something that's impossible. Uh, Even very people very close to home, people who should know better, have come to not believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. Uh, A while ago I read a book, and the author says this. He says, Somewhere in Palestine, the bones of Jesus lie rotting. Somewhere in Palestine, the bones of Jesus lie rotting. Who is this person? Uh, His name is Peter Cameron. Last century, he was the principal of the Presbyterian Bible College in New South Wales. Uh, The book, published in 1995, it's called Fundamentalism and Freedom. It won't be on the bookstall at church camp. Um, it uh, It was written just after a time when we had no minister here at Chatswood. And during that time, Mr. Cameron often filled in and preached here as our supply minister. What's going on? Academic pressure stuff happening in his own life. Mr. Cameron claimed that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but, but I've got to say, 
I look at this passage, and no matter how smart he is, no matter how many degrees he has, no matter how many Bible colleges he's the president of, he's wrong. I disagree with you, mate. I mean, think about the witnesses. John himself. John saw Jesus die on the cross. He saw the empty tomb. This is an eyewitness writing for us. Josephus, sorry, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They're not like disciples who've been following Jesus the whole time. These guys are religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders. They're scared. They've got a lot to lose. And yet here they are playing their part in the story. They wouldn't have believed that Jesus rose from the dead unless it happened. And they can confirm Jesus was dead and buried. They owned the tomb. They put him in there. Mary Magdalene. Do you know what? In those days, people did not accept the truthfulness of women as witnesses. If you wanted to establish a matter in court, you could not get a woman to be your witness. And yet here, the way John tells the story, the very first witness to the resurrection of Jesus is a woman. Why would he tell the story that way? Answer? Because it happened that way. He doesn't try to massage the story to make it more acceptable. He doesn't try to fudge it here or there so that people will believe it more. He, he just he tells it the way it was. Some people say that the disciples invented the story of the resurrection or they stole the body, but you look at what happened and it makes no sense whatsoever. The disciples were defeated, they were despairing, they were terrified, and for them the idea of a resurrection, it was a total shock. They weren't expecting it, they weren't trying to find, up, find some way to make up a resurrection. When the body was gone, they didn't assume, oh, resurrection, no, they assumed grave robber. When Mary hears Jesus' voice, she doesn't assume, oh, well, resurrected guy talking to me. No, no, she assumes gardener. This is a story of ordinary people like you and me who've experienced something extraordinary. It's not a fantasy, it's history. I read the story and to me it is clear, yes, a resurrection is unusual, impossible, unique. And yet it happened and people saw it and they've written it down for us. And its uniqueness and truth is why we're still reading it here 2,000 years later. The resurrection happened. Second thing to say. Second thing, the resurrection is physical. Uh, Quoting from a booklet published in 1969, it's called Essential Christianity, A Way of Life. The author says this, Christianity has too often been confounded with or even based upon alleged historic facts of debatable historicity such as the physical resurrection of Jesus. But then he says, we may believe in the spiritual resurrection of Jesus. He says, the spirit of God which dwelt in Jesus Christ can dwell in you and me and in all men. Uh, The author believes that Jesus' body wasn't physically raised from the dead. Instead, what the resurrection means is this. The spirit of Jesus lives on in the heart of his believers. Who's the author? Uh, The late Reverend E.H. Vines, M.A.B.D., Diphead Minister of Chatswood Presbyterian Church. Again, his book won't be on the bookstall at church camp. Uh, Mr. Vines believed that the resurrection was a spiritual thing. Jesus living on in your heart. Again though it makes no sense of the story as it's told here. Jesus' body was buried. Wrapped up in linen and spices and put in a rock tomb. 
And then the tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away. The body was gone. And then Jesus appeared to Mary, not to her heart. No, no, to, to her eyes and her ears and her hands. He spoke audible words. She grabbed hold of him. This, this is not a story of Jesus' spirit living on in the heart of Mary. If it is anything, it is a physical resurrection story. Do you know what, friends? That is vitally, vitally important. Vitally important. It means that the future beyond the grave is not one of being spirits floating on clouds. It's not kind of an ephemeral thing. It's a physical future. It's a new heaven and a new earth. Do you know what else it means? It means... It means that God hasn't given up on this creation. God hasn't lost the battle. Sin and death and the devil don't have the victory. Jesus has won the victory. This creation will be redeemed and transformed into the new creation. Just as Jesus' body was redeemed and transformed in his new body, God has the victory. Jesus has the victory. This creation is not finished. The resurrection happened. It was physical. And friends, it is the the foundation of our hope. It's the basis of our hope for a better future beyond death. As Jesus himself said, he said, do you remember when um, John chapter 11, when he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you notice Jesus, he's not described as the resurrected but the resurrection. It's not just that he is raised from the dead, it is that he is the beginning of the resurrection and all who trust in him will be resurrected from the dead in the same way that he is. Jesus' actual physical resurrection is the guarantee of our actual physical resurrection. Let me quote again from David MacDonald. As I lay in my hospital bed... With terminal cancer and little hope of recovery, questions of life beyond death weighed upon me. Was Jesus really physically raised from the dead? How do we know? What if it's all a big hoax? It's one thing to live with a delusion, but I don't want to die putting all my hope in that delusion. Everything hinges on Jesus Christ. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then I know I can trust him. The resurrection validates Jesus' words and actions and gives substance to our hope of life beyond death. I love that expression, substance to our hope. It's not just a philosophy, it's not just a hope, it's not just a a, a theology. No, no, it's a person who has brought the future into the present. A person who is already resurrected. So we can see resurrection There is substance to our hope. David needed to know. And so once again, he carefully studied the evidence for the resurrection. And once again, in the face of his own death, David found the evidence compelling. He says this. "Uh, We can hope for a cure, and that's a good thing. But where will we set our hope when the inevitable day arrives and death knocks on the door? God urges us to take hold of eternal hope by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. And this hope of eternity is not wishful thinking. It's real. And it's anchored in history. It comes from Jesus Christ and his victory over death. 
I may never be able to say for certain that I'm cured of cancer, but there is one thing I do know for sure. Because of Jesus, I have a hope beyond cure that nothing can take away. Friends, that's our hope. God will raise us to life, body and soul, like Jesus here. And we will live in a new heaven and earth, a not less than physical new heaven and earth. That's our hope. It's a glorious hope. I hope that it's your hope. And it's a hope that's built entirely on the actual physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the reality of the resurrection. We thank and praise you that Jesus, who was dead and buried, came back to life again, resurrected. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that he's not just resurrected, but he is the resurrection, that he is our hope, and that because of him we can know that this life is not all there is. Because of him we can know that you are true and your words are true and your promise to raise us from the dead if we trust in Jesus is true. Father, do please fill us with, with peace, with joy, with hope, no matter what the circumstances of our life, because of the resurrection of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.